This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Fantastic. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Welcome aboard. Listen, guys, this is the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and I'm very fortunate enough to be one of, with one of the most interesting people I've met, Alex Pohl, who has a shop in England called The Forge, is with me here, and I'm just thrilled that you're here. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Jeff. And I'm also thrilled myself to be here. I, I was lucky enough to have Alex. Pa, Alex was doing a uh, he was doing a class in uh, upstate New York at Jimmy Duresta's a number of oh my year well like what about a year ago last, last year exactly a year and uh, he on his way to the airport he and Steve and Joe wanted to kind of stop by the shop on his way down and and uh, Jasueda was nice enough to take you know stop to the shop and. I got to meet the guys, and there's such great blacksmiths, and and it's just it's to me it really is an honor. You are a giant man, P.S. And, and I, I don't want to. The, the one of the funniest things about you is when you came to the shop, you took a picture that I'll post, and you picked up this giant sledgehammer and you held it over your head with one hand, and it looked like this tiny little hammer. It was amazing. It was like a it was like and a the, five or six pound sledge, wasn't it? And I was a big hammer. It was. It yeah. looked like a. T- it looked like one of your Cliff Dufton hammers that you swing in your hand. But to me, yeah. it's. A, I got to take the two hands to pick it up. I'm quite big. Yeah, that's fine. So, yeah. so, how did you start? How did you start the forge? Uh, how did you start the forge? How did you start the blacksmithing? Your blacksmithing identity and and the creation uh, of the forge. That's kind of two slightly separate things, but the. It all started. Uh, it kind of started when I was about four years old. It's quite. Uh, it, it, I'll, I'll cut the story kind of not too long. But my mum's a, a jewelry maker. Oh, okay. Um, and a silversmith, and almost before I can remember, I mean, she's filled in a few of these kind of details of the stories that I used to sit. Uh, she had a jewelry bench in our kitchen in London. We, I, I was brought up in West London, and. Um, she had a, a a jeweler's bench just in a little alcove in our kitchen down and we had a basement kitchen and apparently i would sit on a stool by the side of her chair for just hours and hours on end watching her making jewelry wow um yeah it's kind of it, it's it's a it's a weird beginning in a way because i don't remember very clearly exactly sitting with her but she said well she said hey i didn't really talk much until i I was about 18 uh, and and that I haven't shut up since. <laughs> <laughs> I was I getting nervous. That... I was just like, what are you doing with this podcast? Thank God you're not, you're not <laughs> no, 19 no, I... right now. You're not like 17 right now. I, I could... <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wish. Uh, and uh, and also I would just sit there for, for hours, apparently just watching her, you know, kind of make it. She made the most beautiful kind of very 70s style silverware. Uh, jewelry and brooches and earrings and all all sorts of stuff. The one thing I do remember is that I, I, I she had a box of gemstones. It was an old chocolate box, like a wooden chocolate box of of different assorted chocolates. And uh, in the box was this collection of gemstones, the most amazing, like big, smoky quartz. But they were like two inches in diameter, huh. and uh, watermelon tourmalines and 
you know, all these crystals. And I used to just play with them for hours and hours, just sitting kind of on the floor in the kitchen. And I, and I do really remember that very clearly. Um, so that's kind of the beginnings in a, in a strange way. And then um, when, when I was 18, 19, I went to go and study architecture in, in London and um, didn't do well at architecture at all. I'm, I'm, most people know this already. I'm, I'm extremely dyslexic. Uh, very bad with numbers, calculexic, all these kind of, you know, different things. Didn't do, didn't do so great at school, but I did manage to pass the interview to the architecture uh, degree, and uh, kind of flunked out of that. But as part of it, there was a, a jewelry course, and so I signed up and and walked into this this studio in North London, and that was it. Bam! Like, I mean, the hairs are still you can't see it, but they still raise up on my arms even. 30 odd years later that I walked in and I knew for the rest of my life life that's that's what I was going to be doing. Well, you know what's interesting about architecture is that generally speaking most architects are late bloomers. Like a lot of times you'll find some of the best architects in the world they didn't really get into architecture until later in life. Yeah, and it's a it's a really difficult thing to to kind of study, it's a difficult thing to conceive uh you you have to have a very well i think you have to have a mixture of a very logical and a very artistic creative brain and i did pretty well at the design side of things right but i just wasn't into sitting in lectures and you know doing mathematics and all that kind of stuff right and figuring out where the uh, the the drain line for the toilets are going to go yeah exactly <laughs> when the guys talking about members you know i'm sniggering in the background <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, basically, Jeff. You know, just to, to to get it clear between you and me, I, I'm just a big fucking child, basically. <laughs> That's the best. That's yeah. the best. There's nothing wrong with I'm, that. I've not grown up, you know. So, oh, of course not. And the and the kind of second part of your question was, when did the forge start? Well, the the forge, as I suppose, the kind of the the people know it now, um, sort of really started when when Joe and Steve joined about four or five years ago. I mean, in in between, kind of being 18 and going into a jewelry workshop and being 40 something uh and meeting steve and joe and them coming to work for me there's there's quite a lot happened yeah. but the forge as an entity now is is a kind of a, a bit of a collaboration between the three of us um so that's the kind of almost opposite ends of the scale and then, well, then there's a, a chunk of stuff in the middle let's just back up it a little bit one yeah. of the interesting things to me as for as a metal worker and uh, working with Joe, I've only worked with jewelers. Uh, my, my formal training was kind of ornamental ironwork. So everything was v railings and, and um, kind of architectural stuff, you know, yeah. gates and stuff like that. And I always found it to be very, very difficult to get in the mindset of jewelry because there is this sense of it's a very, in you have an intimate relationship with your customer. It's a completely different mindset because. And it, I've been thinking about it with you in general in terms of the kind of stuff that you guys do now. I would mm. think that your your early, you know, using, doing jewelry, I mean, when you're making a railing, it's for every, you know, whoever's walking past it is for whoever's walking past it. But when you're making a ring, it fits a certain size, it fits a certain person. There's like this, because of the size, it's much more uh, approachable to a customer. I'm, I'm not talking about price or anything like that, but I mean, mm. everything about it is very... I always felt like jewelers have more of an intimate relationship with their customer. 
and 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 I'm interested in the fact that when so let's get into you you went into jewelry yeah. uh outside of uh, architecture and and um and what were you making what did you do what in the in the jewelry world or yeah well when you when you were really interested in taking your classes and what did you think you wanted to do what 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 was what 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 is it that interests you about making jewelry I think it's the um that's a very interesting. No one's ever asked me that question. I think it was just the 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 desire to make something. Right. Uh, I mean, very clear to me now is remembering back uh, and having that sense of I I made that. That is something that I have achieved, and no one can ever take that away from me. You know, that piece yeah. of jewelry, the first bits I made. Um, they're still around. They're going to be around for a hundred years. You know, I had a, I had a, I, I had a, an extremely privileged upbringing, but it was also quite difficult at the same time. Uh, and I think, you know, having dyslexia, I went through the private school system. You know, if you're dyslexic, you're not dyslexic. You're just plain fucking stupid. Right. And. To a certain degree, for me, making is 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 a way of kind of affirming. Yeah, I'm I made that. That's me. I've done that. I've created it. It's kind of something solid to show the world that, you know, I'm not a fucking idiot. I can do stuff. Um, and those right at the beginning, those days, I think for jewelry it was very accessible. I could make stuff at home. I could, you know, I, I set up a little bench in my flat. Then I went to college, and it was make anything. But it, for me, it's make anything out of metal. So I don't mind. There's no difference to me between a, a ring, an earring, a gate, a railing, a spoon, a table. It, I don't see any real difference. Right. It's just scale and material. You know, if you can design a knife, if you can design a a table or a railing or a, or a sculpture, you can. It's the same mindset. So, I, right back in the early days, it was a case of let's let's make anything. I mean, I love the intricacy of jewelry. You know, I'm six foot six. You've met me. I'm 18 stone. I'm a big bastard, basically. But I think I quite like the kind of weirdness of being able to make really, really, really small things. Um, it's very, it's very interesting. It's because when I, I could, it was very hard for me to, to step back from these monumental things and make these tiny little delicate things. It was very, very hard. And yeah. it's interesting when you say, when you talk about this, Lexi, I think a lot, I mean, I, I was the same way. And yeah. I also went to private school, and what they what they would tell uh, my parents was for me to hide it, for me especially when if I was going to go to college, don't say anything. You know, yeah. it was very much along the lines of that. And I get the feeling, and I think a lot of people feel, especially what you were feeling in terms of making, there's this sense of redemption, and the yeah. redemption is is you're not, you know, we're we're in doing something that's very um, unorthodox to a certain degree. I mean, blacksmithing now in the in 2020 is relatively it's still a little unorthodox and i think that you're 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 having this idea of you being almost like a misfit in a certain in, in certain regards hmm. you making something with your own hands and your mind is the redemption and i think we're always kind of looking for that redemption yeah you know and I, I think i mean intrinsically i'm an incredibly selfish person and i don't mind that i think i'm not particularly worried about this sense of selfishness in a but you can use it as a positive force why do you say you're selfish because i make for my own reasons so right. i make for my own desire i don't make for other people i mean maybe it sounds a bit 
odd, but I make to fulfill. I think I make to fill a, a hole in in something in my in my psyche or in my soul if I had one, which yeah. I probably don't. You know, it's kind <laughs> of it, it's, it's dark in there. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> so know. sure it's selfish I, because you are. If you were selfish, you would be coveting your everything you made, and you wouldn't let anyone see it. I suppose, would, yeah. So that's an interesting point because I don't like anything I make either. Right in a sense which is very very common within the in, within people who make stuff is that it's not that i don't like it uh you know i don't often use my own the stuff that i make i i don't have a lot of it at home right i, I don't often use you know i buy cliff's hammers because i don't like using hammers that i've made myself right uh because you start to see the imperfections and it's that's not a good thing but i i think yeah, kind of make for my own drive and for my own reasons. Yeah, maybe selfishness is not the, quite the right word. It's it's a. I mean, in me, it's a, and I think in in you and loads of the guys and I, you know, Jeff, I've been listening to the to the podcast for the last few weeks, um, and there's an amazing similarity between a, a lot of the people you've been talking to. I'm it's this kind you. of, it, yeah, I mean, it's incredible. This kind of internal drive to achieve something and whatever it is sometimes it's just to be the best you can be at that point in your life well a lot of these maker podcasts they want to talk about the band saws and all the nonsense and it, ultimately that stuff is like it's completely shallow it's in regards to what you actually have i'm far more interested and you know i'm actually just really talking to people i've already talked to and i've met before because i yeah. i feel sometimes i feel uncomfortable creating chemistry with someone i've never talked to before and I'm, that's my own problems but i i really feel like Everyone, I'm convinced that makers especially, their 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 behavior and their decision making, including what they do, comes from um, traumas as a child. And when I hate the word trauma. Yeah. I was actually looking for a different word. I was looking for synonyms for it because traumas don't. It, it makes you think something happened like a giant wound, and and you you something you're exposed to something at a young age, and either good or bad, and it makes you informed decision. It makes you either like it or not like it and if you yeah. like it you you're you're attracted to it and you do something closer to it or you don't like it you act in a way that repels that feeling again so we're kind of i don't think that i think that especially when you listen to these podcasts and people say you just got to work hard and it's good we there yeah. people need to deal with the, the the real issues and the decisions that they make and the behaviors and the reasons why they act but most of these guys like you talk to you know talk about chris cash you talk about Brett, you talk about Cliff, you talk about all these guys, you kind of see where it all comes from. It comes from these like actions and reactions that happen in their lives. Hmm. And then that's what pushes them towards this particular, you know, area of life. It's weird. But that's and I'm what's supposed saying. to be telling dick jokes. But uh, it ain't happening. It hadn't been happening. <laughs> no, I I got yeah. it hadn't been happening in a long. You time, can do so. dick jokes if you want. Or, or, or I don't mind. But <laughs> I, you know, I'm fascinated. I'll, I'll tell you a, a couple of things, and I, and I'm not, you know, pulling your strings. Yours is the only podcast I've ever listened to, <laughs> and wow. that is honest truth. Thank you. Thank you. Because a lot of the podcasts are lots of people. I've tried listening to some, and I think I've had half an episode of Joe Rogan, but it was about four hours, and I just ran out of yeah. Steam. And I, what I'm interested about what you're doing is you're talking to people and finding out about their lives. You are genuinely, genuinely interested in people. Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the fact remains that how do we get into this position? How come we're not lawyers? My kid, you know, I, I, I talk to my kid a lot 
and I'm very mm. fortunate right now. And I'm fascinated by what she wants to do in life. Recently, just this past weekend, I was, and I'm, I'm going to be vague about it, but we were with someone who said something to towards me that was so jarring to my daughter. It was very upsetting to her. It wasn't, I mean, it was a misunderstanding or whatever, but it was jarring enough that she said, I said to her, we drove off and she we get in the car and she says, don't say anything until we drive away because you're normally very loud. And they usually hear you complain about it. And we were driving away and I said, how did that make you feel? And she said, it made me feel shitty. And I said, is this going to be, are we going to put this in your trauma files? And she goes, oh, yeah, I'll remember this until, you know, for the rest of my life. It'll be the story. Remember the time that guy said this to you and I didn't realize I was there and it was really, really upsetting to me. I'll always remember that. And it's, and it's, it's, it's as a parent, you, what you don't want to do is you don't want to be part of the trauma files. That's my move. My move is to do whatever it takes for me to not be in those traumatic files of, of, you know, turning my daughter into something that you know did anything other than to support her completely but i i, I think in which case you've you've lost the battle of course whatever 100%, we do 100 percent. i mean you know whatever we do we're gonna we're gonna fuck our kids up one oh, way or another 100 I mean, i'm just trying to hedge my bets in regards to something yeah, real bad yeah, like i just of, don't want it to be something real bad remember yeah, that dam- time dad you dropped me down the control. stairs <laughs> right right i mean you can only do so much but you know the funny thing is especially chris cash of all the episodes i've done the chris cash episode uh, Mount Phillip Metalworks was so I've never gotten more messages and people were like I know Chris I I couldn't believe what he was saying it was so fascinating he came from yeah. this you know he really turned himself around and yeah. he used the things that happened in his life to propel himself forward towards happiness the happy dude you know and yeah. I think uh, uh, some people it works and some people it doesn't you know but I think that's the kind of you know that's what we're meant to be doing so you know I, I'm 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 writing a book at the moment, oh. and I mean we've got a couple of things I I want to talk about maybe a bit later. But yeah, I've been commissioned to write a book about blacksmithing, and uh, there's a little bit about alchemy in there. You know, I'm right. really into kind of I, I used to study not a lot, but yoga and uh, a lot of psychedelics, and you know the kind of the other essence of the world it's been a, a the wilderness years is what we like to call them nowadays right. and uh and really kind of getting into you know the psychology and all this kind of stuff and as part of that it's about alchemy and now you know what we do is 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 pure alchemy you know we're taking base metals especially all you know blacksmiths and, and also you know like ceramicists potters glass blowers craftspeople take a base material and they apply their will and their force upon it and create beauty or they create function and this is a transformation this is a transformative process and this is what alchemy is it's taking lead and turning it into gold it's just an allegory or you know creating the elixir of life what's more elixir of life than than making something and having it there on the table and going bam that's going to last a thousand years you know but through those processes the physical aspect of making stuff you can transform yourself you can change how you are you know i don't believe anyone necessarily changes completely you know there's like a hard drive and there's kind of apps that you can change if you wanted to get a kind of a modern a modern way of looking at it hard drives are really difficult to to change but you can alter them and you can alter the way that you look at life and you can learn 
I'm ranting a bit, but no, you, know, you, no, can, you can learn. You can learn from the physical processes of what you do, and that's what I've tried to do a lot in my life. I was a, you know, pretty pretty fucked for a lot of years, uh, just fucking crazy, out of my mind, on all you know, on whatever. And I think what I've tried to do through 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 working and you know through blacksmithing and through making stuff and being a a craftsman and being creative is to try and absorb a lot of the shit that's going on in my head and a lot of the stuff and instead of trying to change it you absorb it and you you recognize that yeah you know i've got some fucked up stuff in my head or i've had some trauma in my life or whatever and instead of trying to reject it and run away from it you just sort of trying to absorb it into yourself and make that part of your person and sit down at the end of the day and go yeah you know i reckon i'm probably okay a person i can always get better and to like oneself is a pretty big mission in life, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, and that's for me the kind of core of what I'm doing as a craftsman is is to is to create beautiful things, but also to try and create myself as a better person. I suppose huh. it's a bit of a cliche, but no, it's you know it's interesting because you know just talking about you know the idea of transforming things in alchemy. I, what I always see is especially when I talk to other makers who also have very similar backgrounds where dyslexic or not good in school or you know like jesse savage is a perfect example D didn't hated school refused to go to college and then went out to start writing by himself he wrote books and he was published and he became this i i think what happens i think especially with kids who are kind of out of control or, or whatever is they find something like blacksmithing which blacksmithing and woodworking um which is it's alchemy but there's such a finite rule of science that you can go with it's there's only and the, and what happens is is you have to you kind of have to clutch discipline and then once you can kind of take this discipline and accept it and say okay look I I, I want to do what I want to do but I in order to do what I want to do I have to accept this discipline in my life in order to get from you know from a piece of steel to an uh, axe or something yeah you when you finally get to that point where you've accepted discipline and then you've seen it through to the end that's where I think that there's this inner satisfaction with the fact that you're not undisciplined, that you know how to use discipline in a way that will get you to what you want to see. And I'm, and I, I'm interested in your whole, you know, you were fucked for so long because it's, it's, I think that there's a lot of, I think I'm interested. Tell me why you were fucked. What happened when you got fucked? I want to know. Come on, Alex Paul. How did you get fucked? Come on, man. Yeah. What happened? what, what happened? And I know there's something going on with you and you were in Australia for a while. And I yeah, want to yeah, find I out what happened. I want, to, I want to get over there because the last episode, <laughs> well, Brett sent me all over the world. And now everyone thinks I'm going to be I'm talking to all these world travelers all the time. Brent, oh, well, I'd spent, I mean, I'd spent years of my life traveling. Uh, I mean, what? Well, okay. So you know, I've been, I've spent 10 years of boarding school. Uh, what was a, that like? Was that hard? I don't remember a lot of it. <laughs> Ten years in boarding school? Yeah, so I went to boarding school when I was eight and came out at eighteen and it's just it's just what you know. I mean I, I'm not sure it it was great for me. I think looking back I I realised what an incredible opportunity it was and I kind of regret I didn't take more notice of what was around me and the opportunities that were being presented. Uh and I'm at, you know, I'm at boarding school. I kind of meet people. Uh, we start drinking. Right. I mean, I've I've always had a predilection towards substance abuse. 
Hmm. Uh, you know, I was getting pissed at seven years old at my parents' weddings. You know, seven years <laughs> old? I was found behind oh, the sofa mercy. with a kind of half-empty bottle of champagne, you know. Uh, Jeez Louise. No there was a lot of shit to, happening at home. No wonder they, no they sent you to boarding school. I'm surprised they didn't send you to military school. Well, uh, you know, I'm not sure that was just a kind of, a, you know, a, a kind of a, a wedding thing where I've, I've snuck off with, a you know, a, a couple of sips of champagne. But, yeah. uh, you know, I do remember my stepdad. Uh, so my, my, there's been quite a lot of divorces in, in the family. And, I, uh, you know, one of my stepdad's, my first stepdad was, it was, uh, he kind of wasn't the nicest guy in the world. Right. Uh, there was some pretty d- sort of dark stuff. And I remember one Christmas, he put a bottle of ale, like a bit, a bottle of brown ale in my, in my Christmas stocking. Huh. And I could not have been very old. And apparently, <laughs> I don't remember, apparently I drank the whole thing in one go and then proceeded to chase everyone around the house wielding a golf club. How old were you? It's like Christmas morning. I don't know. I must have been, I mean, young. I don't know, like oh way preteen. Oh my god! And you must have been a monster then too. <sighs> I was least... six, well, I was six foot when I was fourteen. Oh so, you know, so yeah. drunk fourteen year old chasing yeah. everyone around with a <laughs> golf club on on Christmas Eve. I mean, I was just a fucking I'm monster, you, basically. I'm you know. sending you to boarding school too. Straight, I'm sending you to boarding. Yeah. What are you going to do? Well, no, that's. I mean, boarding school was just what we did. My dad went to the same school. My grandfather, my cousins, my great grandfather, my brother. We all went to. You know, I come from an immensely privileged background. You know massively privileged not like upper class but um kind of wealthy middle class english white background yeah. so uh, so throughout you know, the was your mom still making jewelry at the time no she fort- she had no she had stopped um she must have stopped i don't know i don't remember when she stopped she sort of did a load of different stuff and why do you think she stopped uh that's a good question i think because when you're bringing a shop into your house, and you, especially in your kitchen, and your kids there, and you're having this really great, you know, you're creating these things that are very, like I said, I think the jewelry is very, especially jewelers. I think that when you're making jewelry, it's a very there's an intimate relationship with your customer, even mm. if you don't, even if you're not making it as a commission, because it's a specific thing for a specific person in a specific style. So you're she's creating these things, and you're sitting next to her, and I just wonder. It sounds. I mean, it's not. It sounds, I'm interested, I would want to know why she stopped, you know. I'll have to ask her. Yeah, well, all right, well, that would be I don't know, one. I think, uh, yeah, who knows? I think, I mean, she had two stepkids, she had me oh, and my man. brother, so there's four of us, four boys oh, so in the she household. Never, she didn't have time to be making She didn't rings. really have time. Ugh. Uh, you know, she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to mess around with that. My, my, my stepdad's a fucking lunatic. Uh, oh, God. You know, he's a he's a basically he's an alcoholic misogynist. You know he was pretty violent. Wow. Um, I bet the jewelry making for her was a real bomb. A real a real release, I think. I mean, yeah. you know, you know, and then I then I go to boarding school, and I'm kind of you know I'm a sweet innocent kid until I get to about thirteen and a half, and uh, you know I just kind of started drinking at thirteen. Oh yeah, I mean I was yeah, I have to be a little bit. I'm not going to be that careful. I should be quite careful to what I say because my kids will probably listen to this. No, but, no, no. I mean, this I'm been, I'm is... pro, like proper binge drinking at 13, like to out of your mind, skull fucked, pissed, uh, and then 
we discover that there's other things than just right. booze. Right. You know, I started smoking pot. I have my first, I smoked, smoked my first cigarette when I was eight. I kind of I smoked started smoking pot when I was thirteen. I started taking mushrooms. I was taking acid, ecstasy. At speed, coke. No, probably when I was sixteen, we started oh hitting it. I mean, I'm a kind of kid of the rave generation, you know. But we were, were your, where were your parents? Ah, oh, they didn't. You know, they didn't have a fucking clue. Damn. I'm at boarding school. I can do whatever I want. Uh Yeah, I think sixteen. Sixteen. I went. To, I flew to the states to go and see my brother. Took my first ecstasy. Came back that night. Hit a rave. LSD. That's it for. 25 years jeez louise and then what made you what pulled you out of it i think having kids uh exhaustion i mean you know and it got worse than that (laughs) (laughs) i mean i just kind of liked you know we just liked to party we were just party kids basically i don't i mean i think part of it was it looking back now it took me out of myself it suddenly i remember clearly there's a switch there's nothing in my head. I don't care. I don't give a fuck about any of you. I literally didn't give a shit about anything. I would have fucking done anything, any time of the day, any amount. Hmm. I'm quite lucky in the fact that I don't have a very high tolerance to substance. Right. Wow. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's pretty good for me. That's pretty good for anyone, apart from alcohol, but I can drink a lot. But, you know, we just we're just on I was just on one all the time so it's like Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday work maybe Monday Tuesday Wednesday scam travel move somewhere else make something get some money under the next one um, you know there's a there's a there's a lot of heroin in England that kind of started to creep in and uh, yeah what, I mean, what do you think you were looking for escape is, you were looking for escape silence That's numbness is, right? you know it's just it's just a fucking escape we had fun i mean i gotta say we were just enjoying ourselves i'm sh- i listen until it I, went yeah until it went bad <laughs> i now, now just a little just so you know that i'm not we're not too dissimilar yeah. when i i grew up in a pretty you know upper east side manhattan and when my parents divorced my mother was kind of not around my dad was not around so i grew up in the 90s uh in you know in manhattan and we used you know the underage drinking and it was a lot of like, I mean, the world, world was my oyster. You know, I went to school with, you don't know, but uh, Robert Chambers was the preppy murderer. He's the guy right. who, I don't know if you remember this, but he was at underage drinking at a bar we used to go to. He brought this girl in the Central Park, and it was the hu- biggest story in New York because he basically, he claimed that they were having rough sex, and he just choked her to death. But Whoa. this was, I went to school with him a few years behind him, and it was like, it all became very apparent that this kind of youth, the youth my generation's youth culture of underage drinking and you know the parents were divorced no one was around and the, con- the concept of these privileged kids who were escaping something you yeah. know and it was very much along the lines of it was i wonder what i was trying for me and i never i mean i wasn't i mean i, I was drinking maybe like 15 16 or something like that but it was it was like i was trying to have i was looking for acceptance from friends yeah i'd already decided i mean my dad was on his fourth marriage and it, things were not going well for me yeah. and my mother was gone so i was really at my mother's apartment all the time and it was very easy for me to just you know see my friends and look for acceptance with somebody because i wasn't getting any acceptance at home yeah you know but dad was married four times i mean it's like 
you know, it's really hard to kind of bounce around when you're, you know, to when you when you have that feeling of no one, no one really kind of watching me and why if no one's going to watch me, here's what I'm going to do. Let's just go and do whatever. We, I mean, that's a kind of private school education as well. So, you know, yeah. it, it's a completely enclosed system. I mean, I've been to one of the top 1% schools in the world. Huh. Yeah. You know, and fucking failed everything yeah well, <laughs> well I, actually i didn't i've come i've got quite a lot of qualifications but i managed to get them without doing any work huh. uh which which i suppose is a is a testament to the how good the private school system is but uh you know and it was just kind of it was the time it was a mixture of the time i think a mixture of yeah so there was a you know my folks were married and then divorced and then my mum was married and then i think uh was it Chris Cash? Someone said on one of your podcasts. Like I remember my mum telling me that she was getting divorced to my stepdad. It's my first stepdad, uh, and I went fucking great. Where are we going for lunch? Wow! Someone else on one of your podcasts has said something kind of similar. But it's yeah, like, Chris know. Cash was happy, super yeah. happy. He was jumping yeah. up and down. It was like great, you know. And it and it, and everyone, you know, I don't want to sound like a you know like I'm bitching, but you know you we had this kind of feel. very yeah exactly, and you had this kind of very weird combination of uh you know massive privilege of education but also a kind of you know strange goings on at home you know the unrest of a divorce or of unhappy parents or whatever you know there was never really i think that i think that i mean my generation was like the highest divorce rate so all the people that i went to school with there was one kid whose parents were married and we were always going up to him and say what is it like to have married parents because yeah. like everyone's bopping around and you know that concept of the parents divorcing and then try to re- you know the parents are trying to redevelop a life and the children always go by the wayside and it's always like you get this feeling like especially when the, maybe they meet someone and maybe the parents meet someone and maybe it's not the ideal person but all of a sudden maybe this will help me and my family get back together but the children are always kind of like secondary to the situation, and it, and yeah. you just get this. It's it's almost like the same story all, all over and over, over again. And basically, yeah. what it comes down to is like the hope of the parents that hope that this is going to fucking work out. Yeah, you know. But I tell you, Jeff, one thing I've I've kind of definitely learned or realized that it's not. I can't use that. I think I used it as an excuse. Right. For quite a lot of time or i managed to get away with a lot of stuff at school because my parents were getting divorced they were like oh you know and i just use any angle but i think i've kind of worked out over the years it's not their fault and it's it's not it's not worthy of an excuse you can't say oh i i was you know trashing my life because of this and oh poor me and all this you know crap it's i made choices we all make choices all the time and basically we we just liked getting high yeah well yeah. I, I if i were in your situation i could totally understand that i mean yeah. i you were we much had fun younger. of course ah. well that see that's the one thing when we talk about you know drug abuse and stuff like that it is fun i mean it is fun doing, having all these adventures and be, yeah. you know being with your friends and kind of avoiding things and it, and it, it is you know it is fun i mean man, start, you know how it if you know we were at raves twenty thousand people it's huge sound Everyone's dancing to the same tune. Right. In fact, I'm sitting here in my caravan with my arms up in the air. <laughs> Ready to <laughs> Reme- go. I see remembering, you. still remembering, you know, 
And it was a, it's like a, it's the new church, wasn't it? For us, it was like as, as you know, I didn't have religion. In fact, I had a, I had an anti-conversion halfway through a church service at my school. Uh, I remember clearly understanding and realizing that there is no God, uh, which kind of freaked my parents out a bit, which is quite interesting. But, uh, you know, this was our church. This was our our way of life it was a it was a way of life yeah. and i'm not saying i'm not promoting it necessarily but i can't condone uh, or say i regret doing you know i don't really regret doing anything right you know maybe i could have used i suppose now i slightly regret i see a lot of the younger guys coming up you know i see like joe who i work with and you know stevie to a certain extent but he's a bit older and you know, there's a guy, uh, some guys I know in Sweden. One of them, Sam Ritter, who's uh, American. He's from uh, from Boulder, I think. Uh, amazing young Smiths that have they're as good as I am now, but they're only like 23, 24. Yeah. You know, That's and then infuriating. It's infuriating. It's infuriating. But... When I when I met Joe and he showed me, I, I said, "Oh, you're a young Cliff Dufton," and I just kind of like under my breath, I was like, "Yeah, fuck you." <laughs> I, I, you're too talented for your age. It's annoying. They're just way too talented. Steve's here, yeah. by the way. Can we interject? And uh, you're gonna say hi, Steve. Hi. Steve's back. Steve's, Steve's back. back. Steve saved the day because he's bought me a plug. Steve's he's the man. Me, uh, Moonshine Metalwork. The ultimate chap. Gets, the, he gets the brownie points for today. The ultimate. <laughs> the ultimate chav filter. Ultimate chav filter. Yeah, <laughs> that he is. So uh, thank you, Steve, for for bringing it. We've got power, Jeff. We're back in. We're Steve's back on. the man. Steve Steve's is the man. man. Steve we'll is the you. total man. Yeah. Right. right. See you later. I think. We're All right. On. Cheers, thank you Stevie. so much. Thanks, right. So that's so, all. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, anyway, you know, yeah. So so you finish. You go into jewelry. You did you did you work as a jeweler after school or did you? When you were starting yeah, to make of, stuff, what did you? What did you? What were you working on? We were working on anything and everything. So I worked as a jeweler and a blacksmith. So I studied both jewelry and blacksmithing. I went to a, a, a down in Plymouth in Devon, uh, on the on the southwest coast. I studied two years worth of um, jewelry making, which, by the way, is the best training for any blacksmith you could possibly think of. It teaches you so many good skills, finesse, finish accuracy subtlety all these amazing you know so i had a, a, a really good foundation then i went to uh, did two years of um what was called architectural metalwork so it's kind of um like artist blacksmithing i suppose is what it's called nowadays i mean remember this is 30 years ago right uh i'm what am i now i'm 48 now um I'm 19. I go down to Devon. I didn't know anyone. Uh, I just got up and kind of left. I spent a year in India or a, a few months in India and traveling in the Caribbean and just gone down to Devon. Uh, met my met my best mate on the first day I was there. Me and a guy called Rob Hills have been working together for 30 years now. And um, so I had this kind of mixed training. Uh, and then Hillsy and I we lived we you know we would we'd rent houses or you know flats or whatever we rented a farm out in the country we just set up our own workshops oh you know what it was like i don't know what it's like in the states but you know there's no mobile phones there's no internet there's no 
blacksmithing world. There is the British Artist Blacksmith Association, which right. is around, but it's just full of old duffers, basically. Well, same thing as a banner. Yeah, you know what I mean. I mean, and so there's a couple of blokes, two skinheads, who we're just making whatever we want to make. We make a ring one day. We made a cannon. That was fucking brilliant. We decided we got up, you know, and thought, what should we do today? And so we, we got all the bits and pieces. We made this cannon. Living out in the middle of nowhere, out, out in in the, in the West Country in England on a farm that had no electricity, uh, all these farm buildings. We just set up a forge. Uh, we thought, yeah, fuck it. We'll just make a cannon. We fired a half-inch ball bearing through four inches of oak. <laughs> oh, my God. Man, it was so good. You know, we just fuck around basically, and someone would go, oh, "Can you make some gates? We make some gates. Uh, can you do this? Yeah, do a little bit of that. Uh, can you do some jewelry?" And we just kind of did that for years, and then I'd move. I mean, I I think I for about I mean, it's quite a long time ago now. I think for about ten years, I I moved every probably four months. Really? Yeah, just. You know, I, li- I, I lived in Spain for a while. My mum lived in France for 20 years, so I went to live there for a bit. Uh, I lived around in the West Country, loads of different places, went travelling a bit, came back, set up another forge, or go and work for someone for a couple of months. So you uh, knew that you were going to be a metalworker. There was yeah, no I mean, question. There was no that, question you were going to be you were yeah. going to be in a metalworker. I mean, that day I walked into the jewellery workshop in, in North London. I'm 18. That is... I, I gave up everything. And like that's... That's my, that's my road to Damascus. That's my, you know, that's right. my clarity. That's all I'm ever going to do for the rest of my life. Had you ever made anything beforehand that gave you the feelings that you got when you decided to do that? Did you ever, when you were a kid, did you ever like put stuff together? Or... I mean, the classic kind of airfix. Do you have airfix models in the states? Yeah, that... yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know yeah. what you're talking about. And then, I mean, I used to sit on the back step of of uh, our house, uh, casting lead soldiers. So I had a. Oh, a, yeah. a, a steel frame with a, a like a frying pan, a small frying pan. I, I can't believe my mum let me do this. It's crazy. Well, she gave you, you got a bottle. Yeah, you were, drink, you were like drinking a, champagne at seven. A little bit of lead ain't gonna kill you, is it? <laughs> she like, fuck it, you do whatever you want. <laughs> and I had a little Bunsen burner under it, and I just burn lead and melt it up, and then pour it and, into these molds and cast stuff. And um, yeah, I think that was the kind of introduction, I suppose, and making airfix models was great. And I used to paint little lead figures um, for so hours and there is and hours this, there is the, that the sense of the sense of permanency from doing that, especially those little lead figures. I mean, I love those little steel things because it was different than like the plastic stuff. Yeah. Because it felt there's a permanence to it. There was a, like a realness to it, and it, it felt like it was something that was for sure going to last forever. Yeah. Hmm. And it's but for me, it's. I don't. I don't know. If, I mean, maybe it's the same for you. I don't know. It's always been metal, so I've, yeah. I don't have any real interest in any other material. It's, I mean, I, I suppose maybe going back a step, my granny was a ceramicist, and huh. actually now I'm thinking about it. So one of the one of the major influences on me, I think, was my granny, who led the most fascinating life. But she had been married to um, an American artist a guy called George Zambrisky who was a Polish emigrant who was a professor at the Detroit Art College I can't find any history on him at all uh, and he he created the most amazing metalwork sculptures hmm. so like bronzes uh, I've, I've got 
So I'm in the house still now, these amazing figures of students, but all just made out of kind of half inch pieces of balsa wood that was then cast into bronze. So he uh, was the same kind of almost generation as like uh, Alexander Calder, who was like, yeah, you know, making like taking like the simplest things of wires and kind of twisting together <clears throat> and creating jewelry and creating sculpture with like yeah. the most simplest of, a, of things. But he like designed skyscraper fronts, huh. and you know they were really cutting edge. They were this is kind of I suppose in the maybe in the fifties. Uh, he he committed suicide, and my granny came back uh, oh. from from the states, and uh, but her house was full of this all this metal stuff, and she was also a ceramicist. So maybe the kind of influences of seeing this metalwork around in her house, the permanence of metal. You know, playing with clay as a kid. She used to make beads, and we'd—I'd go and spend the weekend there. She was dark. I mean, she was amazing. Tiny little kind of, uh, very dark hair, very quiet, very introverted, that incredibly artistic, and really crazy. very bohemian. Yeah, I mean, she was—they lived in one of the first communes in the states. Her, so her—I'll jump back a bit. Yeah, so, yeah. So my grandparents, my on my mother's side, uh, my my grandfather who I never met and my granny were conscientious objectors in the war they were Quakers uh, or sort of quasi Quaker uh, kind of background and my grandfather was arrested and sent to prison for being a conscientious objector huh. uh, t- taken up in court and pleaded his case he said on religious and, and ethical reasons he wouldn't fight but he would give his farm over to producing produce for the local area and he won his case and so they they had this farm up in Lincolnshire but they also had a lot of workers like POWs and ex I think ex soldiers or injured soldiers or, and it was kind of like a commune so we're talking back in the in the 40s late 30s and 40s uh, and then granny decides to leave <laughs> she decides to leave her family and she ran off and i think george was a polish emigrant um or a i don't know what you call people who are escaping like a refugee a refugee yeah so he must have come in as a refugee and he worked on the farm and they, <gasps> they he, yeah they met on the farm they met on the farm Fuck. and god damn those uh, you know what the hilarious thing is if he had just gone to jail he probably would have still been married <laughs> yeah maybe you know, but the amazing you try to do this he... right thing. You try to do this right thing, yeah, and yeah, then all of a sudden he takes these people in the com. You bring the commune in, they and the steal and his fucking wife. fucking George comes off the field and grabs Granny. <laughs> Some bullshit right there. I mean, my mom swears her dad died of a broken heart. Literally, just died of a broken I, heart. You know? I, I, mean, I can't, I can't think of something worse than, I mean, than something cruel, like that. That, cruel, she... that cruelness of losing that whole thing about like being cheated upon. Yeah. It's, it's the heartbreak of that is I find it's almost as offensive as like like serious injury, like yeah. being beaten by someone you care about. I, I, I find it to be grotesque. Yeah. But it's, you know, the heart is a strange thing. So she, you know, she followed her heart. God damn. And it's, isn't that crazy? I mean, you kind of think, well, 
you know, nowadays that's what you're meant to do. People are say, oh, follow your heart and follow your dreams and all this stuff. And she did in those days. It was totally. And she had my mum. So she abandoned my mum or not abandoned, kind of left to go to the States where my mum was pretty young, about 13, I think. And anyway, she goes off and she, she lives in this commune in the States. Um, and then leads this kind of incredibly bohemian life. And, uh, and as far as your mother's go mother goes, she had no contact with her mother while she was in the United States, when your grandmother no, was in the United States. Yeah, I, I, I think recently um, I chatted a bit to mom and, and I think she went over to the States maybe a couple of times. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Um, she didn't really delve into it. That plane ride must have been miserable going over there. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, and so then, she... And then know, grandma's with to... the dude. The dude kills himself. And then grandma comes back? And then yeah. when she comes back, how is she greeted? <laughs> she's she's greeted by my my dad. Oh no! Who this will make you laugh? I mean, they'll they'll kill me if they ever hear this. But yeah, my dad, my dad said, <laughs> always makes me laugh. I mean, my dad's fucking insane, man. He is the most amazing, but out there person. And he said to my mum the day that Granny arrived back, he said, "Our marriage is over," because he could just see. That you know, like the mother-in-law moves into the house. Yeah. You know, and my dad's got a big house in those days with a fucking helicopter. He had two Aston Martins in the driveway. Mum had a Ferrari. They've got this big fucking swimming pool. And Granny arrives, but well, you know, uh, the mother-in-law arrives, and my dad, because he's quite flippant, he just went, "Yep, that's that's us done." Um, and subsequently, a couple of years later, they got divorced. Oh my God! But how was Grandma? Because because now Grandma has set the tone yeah. for like that must have been really hard on your mother because yeah. she, that's what she knows is her. That's how how relationships are. I think so, and I you know out of respect to my mom, I don't. You know, my mom is the most wonderful, wonderful woman in the planet. She's yeah. just. But I think it was incredibly hard for her oh. to. I mean, I don't understand that. I don't know the full picture, but. Um, Your heart goes out for anyone who who has to deal with this, and yeah. then especially when they're exposed to it at such a strange age, you don't yeah. know any better. No, and your mum's kind of taken off, and then she comes back. You know, a mum's got a, a two-year-old and a newborn, which is me, or maybe I'm a bit older. I don't know quite. You know what? And I'm, and I don't think that's the reason they got divorced at all. But it's just a kind of. I suppose that maybe I was making light of it, but I, it was just, it always makes me chuckle in a way. Yeah. The dad's like, yep, that the mother-in-law's, but it's very kind of quintessentially British thing to say. You know, I the mother-in-law's has moved in. <laughs> I'm I think it's, here, you know. it's global. We almost it's had an issue. We had, a, we had an issue recently, not too recently, where there was some sort of mistake, but we just moved my mother and there was some sort of financial mistake that we, we thought there was a financial mistake to, to, to the fact that this woman, my mother, was not going to be able to stay in the place that she's at now. And my wife and I had this conversation. I was like, are we going to buy a house where there's like a, a space for my, my mother? And I look at her and I'm like, I will pay the difference. There is no way my mother is moving in with us. God bless her. Love her. <laughs> peace and love. Peace and love. But she's not going to ruin my marriage. <laughs> You know, I'm not. What, I, what did your wife say? What was her? She said she like, she left out this giant sigh of relief, uh, and she was just like, "Good, because this shit wasn't gonna last very long." If <laughs> if your mom moved in, and I'm like, "No kidding, I'm not." No, I was bored at night, that. but not last night. 
I know what's going to happen. My mom's nuts. I love her, but she's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and it was very, I think that it's very, it's very tough. It's very, it's very tough. Yeah. All right. So let's just change gears because then we went down. Yeah, yeah. Grandma, I, grandma, we God bless Donnie. grandma. God, yeah. God bless grandma. But I, so, so you started, so you're, 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 you're cruising around, you're setting up shops, you're making furniture, you're, you're making railings and furniture. And, not furniture, I don't want to say keep furniture. But railings yeah, furniture, and, anything, and, I mean, and, anything, yeah. So what got you to, what got you to Australia? Because uh, you were there for quite a while, right? Yeah, yeah, I was in Australia for seven, about seven and a half years. Um, what got me, well, it, it was kind of off the back of a phone call from my my dad I think it was what, you know, you guys might call an intervention to a certain degree. Now, none of this has ever been really kind of proven or even spoke about, but I think they could see that I was spiraling in a direction that probably wasn't particularly uh, wholesome. Right. Let's put it like that. I mean, uh, you know, I'm drinking kind of 50, 60 pints a week. (laughs) I mean, I'm out like Friday night, Saturday night. Sunday, Monday, you know, kind of, I had, I had a, you know, I had a good business here, but the business was going from kind of one hand to the other. And, uh, he, he just said, look, so my dad had moved to Australia a couple of years before. Uh, he's always lived pretty much overseas or had for most of my life lived a substantial part of the year overseas. So he lived in in Saudi Arabia, just because of his business, he lived in. We had a house in Cyprus, uh, Menorca, which is uh, off the coast of Spain in the Balearics. Um, uh, Russia. He spent ten years living in Russia, huh. uh, but he would work. You know, he had a base in England, and he would work overseas. He was in you know various different businesses, and one as one of his businesses, he he bought. They bought a property company, and the property company owned. Uh, <laughs> sounds crazy. They owned a load of gold mines in Australia. So dad uh, has announced one day that he's he's moving to Australia, and so he's he's gone over there with his his um, his second or third third sort of third wife and his daughter, and um, he he just kind of phoned up one day and it just said, "Look, I'm going to send you a ticket. You've got to come out. You'll love it. Come for three months. It's it's you know you can come and stay in the house." I've never lived with my dad, so it was quite a, you know, and I'm 28, 28, 29, oh, I was 28, I think, and uh, this is in 1999, and I arrive, so I think, fuck it, I'm just going to go, I kind of pack up my workshop that I had here, put some stuff in storage, and uh, and jumped on a plane, and I arrive pretty much on New Year's Eve, 1999, kind of on the new millennium. millennium. That's a very generous act on his part. Yeah, I think it was generous. I think my my elder brother might have had some kind of uh, whisperings in his hair saying. So, but it, just, it doesn't matter because he had a new, new family with new kids, and all of a sudden he's gonna he's gonna extend you know this very oh, I generous mean, but thing to his he'd kid. Already, yeah, but he'd already. Um, I mean, this is he'd been divorced from my mum for twenty six years. And but it's still, had a, still yeah. super generous. I mean, he had a, a new family and in a new country, he didn't have to do that. He did not have to do that, but he is an incredibly generous guy. I mean, he's yeah, clearly he's, he's, no, he's, clearly. I, he's all love, basically. My old man so. wouldn't have done that. Yeah, but you know, Dad's like 
just come out, come out of a good time. I think we'd been over for a holiday briefly. So look, just come for a longer trip. You know, obviously you're probably not thriving in the environment you're living in at the moment. Um, so I just I, I arrived in Australia with a bag of clothes and, and my jewellery bag, my toolbox, you know, uh, I just kind of went from there. You know, I, 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 I think it healed a lot of stuff. It got me away from a certain kind of environment. Uh, you know, it's sunny. The food's amazing. The women are beautiful. The space. I met some nice people. I mean, we partied. We still partied pretty hard, but it was kind of in a maybe in a different way. Um, and I, to a certain degree, degree, kind of started to re, readjust and re. I wouldn't say rebuild. It's not the right word. Just to kind of reconfigure the way I was looking at things and what I was doing. Yeah. So did you? Were you doing a lot of jewelry and metalwork in Australia or? Yeah, yeah, but I mean, the idea was to go and kind of stay in. I was on the west coast in Perth, stay there for a little bit, and then uh, I may, you know, maybe do a kind of a blacksmith tour. I was really into blacksmithing at that point. I was doing both, but it, it's kind of hot metal work that that I was into, you know. And I'd I'd done some good commissions and stuff in the UK, and uh, I was kind of right. Okay, well, maybe I'll travel around Australia for a few months and then go back. And I and I didn't. I just stayed. I didn't come home for four years. Um, you know, back to the UK, and I, I met a guy called Danny who, we set up a jewelry studio together, and simultaneously I'd set up a blacksmithing shop at one end of town, and I was working in a jewelry shop in the other end of town, and I was kind of going back and forth, back and forth, and and uh, I kind of uh, Danny and I set up a business, um, where we were we we kind of had we had a very contemporary jewelry workshop so i was making weird stuff with like all sorts of kind of very contemporary slightly um sort of conceptual jewelry so i'd get i'd cut out like letters from the newspaper and and write expressions and then press them between sheets of perspex and then bolt them together and then fix them into silver settings with garnet stones and I put like sweets in and encapsulating. I was really into kind of encapsulating stuff. It's kind of, mm. you know, when I was young, I was really into Duchamp and taking everyday yeah. things and, you know, and changing their location. And, uh, you know, Jeff Coons and all these guys who were taking an everyday object and putting it under the microscope in a sense or putting it in a box. But I did it just on a small scale. Do you think you were paying attention to uh, the the contemporary fashion were you using that or were you just kind of no. like making it happen whatever you we didn't have any contact really with the outside world in a way i mean it sounds a bit odd but you know there wasn't any instagram there was no social media i you know the first time i had a mobile phone i was 29 years old and it was an old nokia brick i mean the same as you guys so there wasn't we weren't getting any influences um yeah, but when you're making jewelry, maybe you might have more friends who are in fashion or no, kind not of at seeing all. what people are. So, no, no, most of the guys I knew there were kind of English wasters, basically. Most of them mm. were running from some kind of either the police or something in the UK, and there was a bunch of English guys living in the, on the west coast of Australia, and then lots of Aussie surfers. And you know, in Australia, they they think if you're a jeweler, they just think you're gay, right? Basically, they're yeah. like, you know, so I remember clearly someone coming up to me at a show going, 
your parents must be how do your parents feel about you you know instead of being like oh are they are they sad that you're gay or are they sad that you're this or blind or whatever they went oh they uh, how do they feel about you being a jeweler and i'm like what the fuck are you talking about because it's such a machoistic society so you know go ahead uh no, I mean, I, that, you know, that was it. So we were just kind of, made, we were in a little, you know, we talk, everyone talks about bubbles these days. We're really in a small bubble. We're just making, I just come up with new stuff every day. You know, we had kind of whatever came into mind, we could make it. Uh, and then Danny and I got fed up of kind of working hard and not making any money. We set up a, a like a, in inverted commas, a proper jewellery business where we were, uh, we had a factory in Indonesia. Uh, we had about 60 different, um, resellers out we had our own outlet our own shops um, and that was kind of like a glimpse into business into you can use your craft to make money but it's still ethical or it's still okay to do that what were you having them produce uh, so we made street jewelry so it was silver jewelry with inlaid surf resin so really brightly colored inlays instead of using gemstones yeah uh, all sorts of very architectural, very kind of um, geometric stuff. Uh, you know, like bracelets and rings, and they're the usual kind of jewelry stuff. So, um, so then you, so then you guys also had the metal shop. Yeah, so I, I was working next door to you and with a blacksmith who was out there. He was a kind of metal artist, and uh, and so we were making gates. Um, I did work very briefly for a. Uh, a, a blacksmith shop um, making kind of a lot of stuff of vin- vineyards and um, a lot of vines and yeah a lot of forge stuff as well so I kind of bounced between the two for years and years so it just seems to me like there was like you had this aimlessness and you started to kind of slowly slowly going go through the funnel of of progress with your life and you, you have this the jewelry and the, the metalwork when I look at your the body of your work now, there's a there's so much uh, there's so much stuff. I don't, I don't I've never seen anything any railings or stuff like that. It's all hand tools, yeah, and like kitchen equipment. And I love the fact that you do so much small, you know, approachable kitchen stuff. And mm. and and I just wonder what what got you there. Do you think the jewelry had any kind of relationship to that or? Yeah, I think so. I think I like, um, well, it's 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 quite clear cut to a certain degree why I'm doing, you know, if you want to talk a little bit what I'm doing now uh, as to what I used to do. So when we came back to the UK, you know, I'd met my wife and we had our first son. I moved down to the West Country and I was kind of making lots of different stuff uh, and gates and railings. About six years ago, yeah, probably about six years ago, I just shut up shop. I was like, fuck it, man. I'm broken. I was completely fucking broken. I was exhausted. Uh, I, I just sit by the kind of wood burner for two or three hours at an end, just with my hands in my head going, you know, what the fuck am I doing? I'll be welding up bits of farm machinery or, you know, making some good projects and some not some good projects and, you know, driving 60, 70 hours a week on my own in a workshop, just trying to, just trying to survive, you know, the kind of, the cliche of there's no fucking milk in the fridge and we've got a newborn baby that right. was all happening kind of all terrifying. over the place yeah kind of terrifying and 
you know, that didn't last very long. And I've got an amazing family who will help me and they'll support me if I need. And you kind of pride gets in the way yeah, sometimes. Course. Anyway, and uh, I think I just kind of shut up shop and I was like, fuck it. I mean, I, I you know, and, and Louise, my wife, just said, look, I'll just take a couple of weeks and just kind of go and make something you want to make. Just just chill out, relax, think about it. Apart from the fact that I've worked on I'm completely and utterly unemployable. Um, she was like, what do you want to make? And I went, oh, I, you know, I don't know. I kind of, am I going to make a knife? So I made a knife and I didn't even know what I was doing. No, right. Nothing, no clue. And then as part of a kind of rebuild, uh, there's two very, very distinct um, meetings that I had, two people that I met who, and again, you know, I'm full of cliches tonight. Fine. Utterly changed my life. Uh, there's a guy called Heiner Zimmerman. I don't know if you've ever heard of Heiner Zimmerman, who is the son of one of Germany's most famous blacksmiths. The Zimmerman family are like, I think his father's called Alf, Alfred Zimmerman. And they are, they're living legends, you know, and they are very key in the artist blacksmith um, world. And, you know, this is about seven years ago. And I go to a, a, an AGM of, of Baba, that's the only time I've ever been to an AGM. And I was a kind of a bit of a process of trying to get myself out of a bit of a hole. I didn't really know what I was doing. I, do I want to carry on blacksmithing? I, you know, it's kind of like a bit of loss of faith. You know, I'm just kind of I'm a bit fed up. And I went to this AGM, just went and sleep in the back of my truck for a couple of days. And and I, odds gone, you know, God's honest truth, I had a five minute conversation with this guy. I'd been to a lecture. He he gave the most amazing lecture. So Heiner Zimmerman now kind of does, he does about 40 lectures a year. I think he teaches in Sweden somewhere. And uh, I went to this and the lecture just fucking blew my head. It's like, what? He just asked questions like, what are we doing? What are we doing as blacksmiths? What are we doing? And he just kept on saying, and he's like, look at what this guy does. Look at this. Where are we? What are we doing? And I went up to him and I, I you know, and I, and I was, I'm like, oh, can I speak to you for a minute? And uh, he's like, yeah, man. You know, he's tiny. And I have this big fucking kind of skinhead giants looming over him. And I went, oh, Heiner, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I've totally lost my way. And he just, this big smile came on his face. On his face. He went, now you can start. <laughs> wow. He's like, that's such good. I'm so glad you say that to me. You know, he's like. And I'm like, what do you mean? I don't, I don't know if I want to carry on. I'm fucking depressed. I don't know. I've never met the guy, and I just had to go and speak to him. He's like, that's. He clapped me on the back. He's like, that's fantastic. Now, off. It's happened to all of us, you know. And I don't know, Jeff, if you've ever had that kind of staring down the barrel of a gun moment. Not literally, but you know. Yeah, I know. That kind of. What am I? What the fuck am I doing? And it's it's such a pinnacle point in your life. He, he goes that okay now you can build. If you're not actually, he said to me, if you're not asking that question every single day, you're not doing you're doing something wrong. It's hundred percent right, isn't it? I, I think that people think that everybody is happy and calm and knows what's going on, and I think that people have this feeling that they're alone in terms of their feelings and that's amazing that must have been like a bolt of lightning for you 
Like, was, yeah, change your it. change your whole attitude. If you're like down in the dumps, this guy says it's good to be down the, you know. Yeah, and you it's good, and you only learn when you're down. We don't learn as human beings when we're happy. Not very much. The lessons it, you learn are when you're being kicked in the teeth. Is it possible that this is just acknowledging that you care? Like, I've, part of me always feels like especially when someone gets depressed like friends yeah. of mine call me up we get depressed and I, i'm i mean i'm a, my wife knows when i'm blue like i mm. will there'll be a day or two where i'm just blue and she's you know and it's always it always seems as though it just means that you care yeah you know and that you want things to be better and you're not satisfied yeah and if you don't care then get out right if you don't if you don't like it but we we can do whatever we want we're you know we're human we're free humans yeah you know, coming from a white middle class, you know, background, that's easy for me to say, and I and sure. I don't say it lightly, but I do strongly believe that as human beings, we are choose, we are free to choose. Well, we are at least free to to try and change your circumstances. Not everyone has that privilege, and yeah. not everyone has that uh, uh, education or facility or freedom or whatever. And and that's I have to, you know you have to be aware and careful when you say something like that, but. I think really we are free to choose and, and what he was giving me in a way was the most incredible gift of like it's okay to feel shit it's okay to question now your choice is what you do with that see this is interesting because now it's all it all makes sense in regards to your early days of you know drinking and drugs and you know trying to like find yourself it's you you're you were trying to self-medicate and find who you are and you needed someone to just kind of guide you and say okay that you're you're looking for yourself and and now now what you yeah know? now what do you do yeah now what do you do so, so what i did uh i went to sweden now it's quite it's relatively well documented the fact that i so i'd saved up uh, this is all in the same kind of six month period. We've got we've got a new baby. I said to my missus, right, I'm off. I'm going to Sweden. She's like, really? I mean, okay, fine. She's great. She's amazing. She gave me the, the you know, the freedom to go and do it. We didn't have any money, and I've spent most of it on a flight and uh, you know a ten day trip to uh, Grandsfors Brooks. Now, it, everyone's heard of Grandsfors Brooks. I presume everyone, you have. Everyone but me. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to tie. Sure. You've heard of Grandsfors Brooks, the axe making oh, factory. Of course. Yeah. And uh, but now everyone's heard about. You know, in those days, I didn't know that it was this kind of cult location. Oh of, sure. Was, you know, like a mecca. Of course. Come on, Alex. Yeah, everyone well, you knows know, I'm, that. I'm behind the eight ball. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not, <laughs> Alex. I don't know. I have no idea what you're talking about, but I, I'm pretending like I do. Have you really? Honestly? No, I completely. I, I have no idea. If you told me it was in New Jersey, I'd believe you. I have no idea. You can't be serious. 100%. I, I wouldn't lie to you. Okay. So Grandsfors Brooks is uh, an axe-making factory in about four hours north of Stockholm in Sweden. Uh, it's, to date, probably the most famous axe-making factory in the world. Uh, one of, certainly. Maybe one of, of uh, probably three in Sweden. So you have Holterbrooks, Grandsfors Brooks, and Vettelings. Of three very famous axe making factories in 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 Sweden, uh, in the states, uh, I don't. I'm not so good on the American axes, but you know. So the, you've got this. Place. This isn't the axe and iron podcast. You don't have to worry about that. None of our listeners yeah, yeah. care about axes. And iron. No one cares about that. You're a knife maker. You don't care about axes. <laughs> anyway, this place is kind of. So I I go off to this place, uh, not knowing anything about it, and I and uh, 
I'm on a on a eight day. No, what am I? Was I on a on ten a days? Day, no, I think I was on an eight day course. Something like that. And uh, I arrived in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and I'd go on this course, and I uh, and I met what now who I would now currently call my master. Um, it's a guy called Frederick Thalin, who's a, who's who's regarded probably as one of the world's best axe makers. Uh, and and just having conversations with him, you know, remember I'm 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 talking about kind of changing, you know, ha- having two conversations with people that have changed the course of my career. Right. And this will this will loop full round into into why I, I do what I do now um, I just hanging out with Frederick and kind of like minded uh, and just he's like you know just to have a bit more respect for yourself basically he wasn't quite as kind as <laughs> as, as the as Heiner I mean he right. was very kind but he's a bit like look basically pull your finger out of your ass you, you can do what you do and just and just like have a bit more respect for yourself and he's in in a very encouraging way and in a kind of loving way and you know we've become incredibly good friends swedes swedes aren't known for their uh lovingness they don't they don't they don't (laughs) cut their words very much do they you know but they're fucking amazing people incredible one of my close friends was is swedish but it's like you know it's you're not going to get uh you're not going to get much uh there's no sugar coating no care you're gonna you're gonna get very little care in their word Exactly, and uh, anyway, I do this course. I'm the only professional blacksmith on the course, and this, you'll love this bit. I'm the only one that fails the course. Huh? I was the only one that didn't succeed in the project. Why? And I and I fucking love that. I, it was so, it was so good for me to fail because I I was forge welding. Uh, so we were making laminate axes, and the weld I did, I'd never welded anything. I mean, before going to Sweden, I'd never made any tools. You know, I might be a, a I might have been a blacksmith for like 18 years but I hadn't had a traditional training so I'd, I you know I'd barely even made a pair of tongs before and uh and this was all part of the kind of you know transformative journey that I wanted to go on and um and we're making laminate axes and and the weld I just couldn't weld it and I couldn't I tried and even Frederick's gone like man no you might as well just he didn't say give up but on the day on the on the last day but one I just said look Frederick, I'm gonna, I'm gonna admit that I failed, and it was such a relief, and it was so humbling, and it, it's really good to be kicked on your ass once in a while. You can't, you know, strut into a workshop going, you know, I've got 15 years of smithing behind me. I think I was not arrogant, but I think I was pretty kind of, you know, I can do this. And the guy next door to me. Lars, German, never picked up a hammer in his life, made the most beautiful axe. Mm. And just and just kind of I'm like, this is great. I'm just being crushed by the universe and I love it. I and I, and it was it was such a good experience to go over there and not succeed because I came back thinking, right, I've got to rebuild, I've got to kind of rethink. I, I went back into the workshop and I just started to change the way that I approach things. I think I started to have a bit more respect for myself, for the craft that we that we're in the traditions, starting to study more about the traditions and the history of blacksmithing and about to kind of, so I say I've been blacksmithing for, for 30 odd years, but actually I've only been a blacksmith for about five years. You know, it's fascinating because, you know, when you talk about the failure in, in, um, and that ax making class, you know, you went in there with, you went in there with the degree of desperation. You know, you went in there with the expectation of like, I don't know, learning, 
using what you knew before and then learning something new to fix your problems. It's usually yeah. what people do is, is they're looking for an answer on top of what they're already doing as opposed to kind of breaking everything back and starting from scratch the right way. Yeah. You know, it's almost like it's very similar to cooks. A lot of times, you know, you'll get uh, the cooks will be hired in restaurants and they're they're you know, they have their incredible pedigree, but they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're doing they're not doing what the chef is doing. And it's a, it's a very uh, ego destroying. But at the same time, that realization that you were like, oh, this is I needed to fail in order for myself to kind of understand how to build back up is is pretty. The fact that you were able to recognize that is great. Well, I think, I mean, there's two things that I learned really clearly is one, uh, I'm not as good as I think I am, uh, you know, to the point of there'll always be someone better than you. Uh, I don't, I don't actually think I'm particularly good. I'm not actually a particularly good blacksmith, to be honest, but, and that's not me trying to kind of dumb myself down. Technically, I'm not, I'm not particularly fantastic, but it, it's really good to, yeah, I think it's good to be humbled and humiliated, but in a, in a in a non-negative way in a in a nice or to kind of almost humiliate yourself so i go i try to go back to sweden every year and each time i go back i realize how little i know it's really good to understand that we don't know very much about what we're doing especially think, as as traditional blacksmiths i think that comes with age like yeah, i'm maybe. convinced i'm because you and i are about the same age i'm about to yeah. turn 47 yeah. and and i i feel similar you know i meet all these guys are super talented and doing stuff and and i had a little i had ex enough experience that i felt like i was like an intermediate blacksmith but i feel the same way and, and now as the older i get the less i say i know and mm. the more i'm happy with the fact that i'd rather be on the journey than have the destination of being you know whatever whatever your 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 title is yeah. and i meet master bladesmiths all the time that did the requirements in order for them to get the distinction of master bladesmith but they're just like i don't know man i i just kind of now all of a sudden there's just the, the 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 cross is on me and i just i don't necessarily think that i've learned as much as i could have if i just let it happen you know but we'll never master what we're doing so i, I don't think i want know, to um, i don't think i want to i think the day i master it is that that's that's when it's all over you know i mean and what what is mastery? I would never regard or want to be described as a master of my art um, or my craft. I want to be I want to be learning, I suppose. And you know, nowadays the learning is is very different. It's it's I'm not so interested in learning technically. I think I'm more interested in learning about how to run a business and how to how to have employees and how to make sure that you know steve and joe and we've got a, a, a couple of the other guys who are working for me how they're happy and how they can interact and how to you know so you're always learning and that's one of the beauties of, of what we do i think all of us and i mean people in general but whether it's chefs or blacksmiths or knife makers or you know potters or glass blowers or woodworkers or whatever we're constantly learning and that gives me great solace i think the fact that we'll never We'll never know it all. So you came back and you just, you, you focus on, I mean, I know nowadays, now at your shop, you do a lot of frying pans and skillets. Mm -hmm. You do a lot of tableware. Um, I don't know if tableware, but like, I know you do some chef knives and stuff and you do these beautiful axes. Yeah. When did you start to do 
festivals? Because I know that that's kind of a big part. That's how you met Steve. And that's a kind of a big part of your business, isn't it? Yeah, well, it was. I mean, I, I, I met both Steve and Joe at, at festivals. Um, uh, there's a... The, uh, have you heard of the River Cottage? Yes. So River, yeah. No, no, of course not. I haven't <laughs> heard know. of anything. I haven't <laughs> heard of anything outside of Westchester, New York. Pretend I'm an idiot. So the river I mean, don't cottage. Pretend. Don't pretend. Don't pretend. Just let, let it be. Let it be known. The River Cottage is a is a is a big kind of company owned and set up by a guy called Hugh Fanny Whittingstall, who's who's got a, a, a it was a celebrity chef. Is a celebrity chef. Anyway, the River Cottage has a, has got a kind of farm near here. It's really foodie, and uh, and they have an annual fair where they have a lot of food producers and craftspeople. And and I got called up, um, and this a lady who said, well, our our usual blacksmiths pulled out or we can't make it this year can you come down so i kind of i thought yeah why don't i go and do a demonstration um i you know i was doing a bit of teaching and i thought well i've got a portable forge i can go and make some stuff and maybe sell a few things and make some money i went down there and and that was the kind of start of the festival circuit for me so this is about eight years nine years ago um and I went down and, and, and there were people watching and enjoying what I was doing. And this was fucking amazing for me. It's like, oh, wow. You know, people are actually interested in 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 what we're doing. And, and again, and I keep on referencing it because it's it's pre-Instagram. It's pre... Yeah. There is obviously social media going on, but it's not how the world is now. So to have 15 or 20 people watching and you know, applauding when you finished a demo and then buying some things. You know, that's amazing for me. Yeah. You know, and then I went up to I went up to Wales to do a, a thing called the Good Life Experience, which was this uh, amazing festival up in Wales. And I, literally the first year I was I was putting cash in pockets I didn't even know I had. And I was doing demos and selling stuff and and people would buy more things. And then I would do another demo and then I would frantically run the show. I was doing it all on my own. And sleeping in the back of the van, and I would do these like fourteen, fifteen-hour days, and then go drinking at night, and then come back and do some more demos. And people, you know, I was like thousands of pounds in my pocket, and I'm like, this is fucking great. And so I kind of started to build a a, a bit of a, you know, I had a, I got a better tent the next year, and then I built a couple of more forges, and I did some more demos, and then we made more money, and then we like, and then it doesn't always work, you know, sometimes it rains and there's no one around, and it. You know, but I kind of got into the festival circuit, um, and so I was doing that. Uh, I suppose sort of four, five, maybe six times a year, uh, going out and doing demos, and then it just got bigger and bigger. And then we had a fifty square meter marquee where we had two forges and two of us forging, and someone comparing and selling, and you know, it just kind of it went from there, really. That's see, that's that's incredible to me because. In the United States, there's nothing really like that. I mean, especially in New York, because mm. number one, there's insurance, and then number you know, number two is where are you going to be, and it it's a kind of a production. The other thing is is dealing with the public. I'm now convinced, especially with the kind of work that you do, before starting out with the jewelry, and then now with the axes and the hand tools, I feel like you're very approachable to the your customer, which is a lot different than most people, you know. Yeah, and I think that's why we got invited and still get invited uh, to the different festivals because it, you know, the archetypal picture of the blacksmith with his beard and his waistcoat right. and his apron 
and his back turned to the crowd and he just wants to make stuff and he might grunt occasionally and I'm really generalizing and I probably insulting no, half the blacks no, you know I agree kind with of, you 100% I already I got that guy I know that guy it's, it's, you know that guy I mean we're Doug it's Doug we're fucking modern we're modern blacksmiths I'm not a fucking you know sideshow right. I am not a reenactment but and the, and the reenactors are, are fantastic I'm not having a go at them at all but you know I we we have we have black jeans we've got hoodies we've right. got you know branded t-shirts we've got electric blowers uh I'll take some laser cut this and I'll take a little bit of that and I will put some copper in it and we'll force some stainless steel and we'll make a knife we'll make a spoon we'll you know we'll drink pints of wine while we're doing it we, you know and it and it's it's a sh- we're actors you know I mean you know I'm an actor when I'm out at a festival I'm on stage I'm there to entertain I'm not there to teach people how to be blacksmiths because they never will they will come and have an experience so that's what we started doing is to saying to people well, you're enjoying what we're watching. Why don't you come and have a go? So when Steve and Joe join the business, um, you know, Steve is, you know, Steve, I mean, he's an amazing guy. He is a, he is a most superb teacher. He's a people person. Super people person. I mean, you know, a Joe technically is, is superb. He likes people, but he's not necessarily, maybe he's not quite so interactive, but the combination of the two is, is amazing. So Steve, I'll be like, oh, well, maybe you can teach someone how to make a nail while I go to the bar and then I'll come back and teach someone and you can go to the bar and then Joe will make a bottle opener over there. And then he, this guy, he cooks. Well, we get him to cook. So we started doing these forge and feast things. So we would cook legs of venison over the forge while we were making chef's knives, while our friend was making cocktails. And then we'd, and, and Steve's Mrs. Jazz would sell some stuff or I would. And it just became a kind of like an event. Yeah, I was just about to say that's just it's just so smart. And the, the, the funny thing is, is nowadays it's this kind of business itself is so far removed from the way it was vi- viewed, you know, 100, 200 years ago. 200 years ago, this was like, get, I mean, this was a, a job that was, you know, completely risk, no risk. This was like right. a good job that you were trade you're for taking, life. Yeah, trade for life. And now it's this, it's only, it's like an oddity, but it's to our benefit because it is fascinating. You know, when I was with Cliff and John and Jesse and, and Carrie, and we did the uh, Makers event in mm. Queens a couple of years ago. We won seven blue ribbons. We didn't. We did. If this was an Abana event, no one would have seen any. We wouldn't have seen any of us. They wouldn't have we, even let you in. <laughs> they, I mean, it, I mean, it was, but it was because I mean, we weren't. I mean, we were good, really good, and we brought yeah. all the presses and the this, and we were, yeah. you know, shucking and jiving. But it was like we were the only game in town, the only blacksmith game in town, and people just don't. People have no idea what you're doing. Yeah. So for you to be able to kind of go out there and, and show that and create this event is just so great. I just have to go back to what you said about I'm not taking it, taking in the winding up any reenactors. I do. I would like to wind up one reenactor. I got invited to a family thing. This is a family thing. We went to a place called Sturbridge Village, which is near Massachusetts, and it's a it's an old colonial village that they've kind of recreated and the people dress like you know like settlers or whatever federalists or whatever the hell they are so we're walking around and then one of the families said to me oh look there's a blacksmith shop jeff would, would you like to go see that and i said ah sure so we went in there and these these guys were like dressed the way you think that i guess what they're supposed to be 
And I got so furious because the guy, you know, he had, he had the hot steel and the and he, there was a woman cranking the bellows and he, he just kept on taking the steel out of the fire, closing one eye and looking down the looking down the the sea was straight. And then he wouldn't hit it. He just put it back in the fire. So the whole time he didn't he didn't even hit the thing. It was like pulling out the thing, seeing if it was straight and putting it right back in. And I said to whoever I was with, I said, if you don't get me out of this goddamn place, I swear to God, I'm going to burn it to the ground. I swear to God, he didn't pick up a hammer. He didn't pick a head and tongs. He was just looking at hot steel and people would come in, they'd watch and they'd leave. They'd come in and watch and they'd leave. And you put, put something hot and you put it in the oven and then take it out and then, you know, look at it and like inspect it like he's Picasso. And it drove me fucking crazy to the point where I was just like, you got to get me out of this goddamn village. I but can't it take us, it anymore. It gives us a bad name. I mean, yeah, you know, I think... It's probably the same in the States. I don't know if it is. You know, here in the UK, it's kind of, right, blacksmiths shoe horses. Right. And, right. you you know, you're a dying art. And, you know, why well, haven't got an apron? Loads of people say, you know, I haven't got a shaved head. Right. I'm six foot six, 18 fucking stone. Right. We wear black all out. Uh, don't grow a beard. Don't, you know, I mean, okay, we're a bit, a bit scraggly around. A scraggly, the but you know, I don't scraggly. do the long. You don't do the long beard. I don't. I don't do that need either. a long beard. I don't need yeah. a bushy beard. You know, we don't wear kind of. And a lot of people are like, well, you don't look like a blacksmith. And I'm like, well, what do you think? You know, blacksmiths have always been at the cutting edge of technology. They've always wanted to advance. You know, we are modern smiths. We are. We have a viable. This is where I get I get a bit passionate and a bit yeah. angry with stuff, but. Uh, you know, we have a viable place in the 21st century. We are crucial to society. Craftspeople all over, chefs, creatives, are fundamentally critical to society, to our culture. And you, we don't live in the past. We live now. You know, my whole basis, and this is, I suppose, back to your point a little bit about what, you know, what am I doing nowadays? A lot of my business is based around relevance and about relevance in the 21st century. We are fucking here. We will make our mark. We will be loud. We will be brash. We will be sensitive. We will be caring. We will interact. We will treat the people who we're demonstrating to like proper people. We will answer questions. We will inform you. We will show your kids that this is a way of life. Right. This is not something that you see in the movies. This is not something that's dying in the past. This is as relevant now. And in fact, smithing is more relevant now and craft is more relevant now than it has been in any time, probably in the last 200 years. Well, here's because... that's that's excellent. Here, I want to just do it really quickly. Yeah. When I was studying under Uri Hoffi, he mm. used to say to us all the time, what is the relevance of the modern day blacksmith? He says, because if you look at, there's no more fire escapes. You're not seeing, because I had thought at one point I was that I'm going to be in the, decorative fire escape business and i'm gonna make these like beautiful wrought iron fire escapes are gonna be this beautiful addition to a house well they don't do those anymore they don't even make them anymore so so and he says you know he would say construction now is glass and aluminum and bronze and stainless steel you've got to figure out a way to make this relevant because it's not up to me i'm an old man but i'm telling you this all you guys in abana you're doing all these scrolls and baroque stuff I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Obviously, he's an older Israeli man. It doesn't sound like that. But it was basically along the lines of you need to do something in order to be relevant. Otherwise, it's over. Yeah. You know, and that, that that's what and this is something that I talk about. I, t- I think I talked about with Steve 
But I'm in, I'm fascinated by you especially because you've you've taken blacksmithing in general and then taken it away from just doing bottle openers. And yeah. a lot of blacksmiths now they do a bottle opener here and there, but there's not a lot of like innovation in terms of how can we make stuff relevant to 2020 that people can actually use and have. Yeah. You know. And I it's a, it's a it it worries me. It worries me because you know I see guys like Cliff and and John making hammers, beautiful hammers, awesome hammers, but I worry that they're awesome for blacksmiths. But then what about everybody else? And then how many, you know, how, how many people are like me who buy a pile of hammers, you know? Yeah. Where where how can to, we get um, to the... Yeah, to, oh, sorry, I was interrupting you, but I No, were... I just I just I worry about I worry about the modern day blacksmith and how you can enter the marketplace in a way that is appropriate and it keeps the ball rolling you know we can't just make bottle openers all the time no and that's kind of where where i i think i was lucky uh so one afternoon wednesday afternoon uh i can't remember exactly when but five or six years ago i i was i was making something and i went fuck it i'm just gonna make kitchenware and i was like wow that's a concept I just had a kind of, you know, when I'm making stuff, I'm, I'm, I was making skewers. You know, we make all these right. barbecue skewers, and we make fucking thousands of them. I was making skewers, and what I'm making, I'm kind of, you're twisting the ends, you make these little pigtails with a gas torch, and you forge them all out, and I'm making a, you know, fifty or a hundred a day or whatever, and I'm just in the workshop on my own, and I'm thinking, and when I'm doing that, I'm thinking, my brain's always kind of spinning, and I went, ah, oh, well, maybe I could just make kitchenware. I love food. I mean, if I could eat all day long, that's what I would do. I just love food and drinking. I just want to eat and drink. I think I just fundamentally just want to consume the world. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love it. I mean, you know, I don't because it would just kill me. But um, I went, right, well, I, I love food and I love drinking and I love metalwork. So why don't I make a kitchenware business? So I go home and, and you know, I thought about this and I tell the missus and she's like, you're fucking mad. And I went, no, no, I'm going to do this. Right, so I gave up my entire, pretty much most of my business. I was making, you know, I mean, I can make a thousand, fifteen hundred pounds a day making curtain poles if I want to. Right. You know, or every day of the week. Or I was making a lot of furniture for a company up in London and making good money, but I didn't really like it. So I'm like, no, let's just make stuff for, for the kitchen. People want utensils. And it's kind of back to that jewellery thing. So we've kind yeah. of, in a way, we're coming full circle. Yeah. What am I doing now? Well, and with this thing with the River Cottage, which is all food-based and starting to meet chefs, and the chefs are going, "Can you make this for my restaurant?" I'm like, "Yeah, that's a good idea." I mean, you—I mean, you're in the, you're in the food business as well yeah. yourself to a certain yeah. degree. And then they're like, "Yeah, but can you make this and you can make that?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And so, it's, you know, quite quickly, I moved everything. You know, my accountant said, "You're insane. You're mad. This is never going to work." He said, you've just wiped out 80% of your turnover overnight. And I'm like, yeah. So I spent three years just saying no to everyone. Can you make a gate? No. Well, even if we pay you 15 grand. Yeah, no. I'll give it to my friend Rob. He'll do it. For a while, I kind of, uh, in inverted commas, had a kind of consultancy where I would I would take on jobs, farm them out to different smiths, and then take a percentage. Uh, and they kind of worked a little bit that way because people would just wanted jobs done sure and i'm like no you know people now they asking me do you can you do this i'm like no i don't and now people don't bother asking me because 
they know I don't do it. Uh, you say no too many times, people stop asking. But I want them to stop asking. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished because now we just make what we want to make. And so right. then I get into my head. I've come back from Sweden. I get into my head. Right. I'm just going to make what I want to make. I want to enjoy the process. I want to. I want to love. You know. I'm going to die one day and I don't want to get to 65 and retire. I want to enjoy my retirement now because right. I love doing, I want to go to the workshop. You know, we have an 80% rule in the workshop. So we have to like stuff. If we like it less than 80%, we stop making it. So hmm. some of my best products, most successful products, I don't make anymore because I don't like making them. And it's, it's about passion it's about enjoyment it's about going into work you know and this applies hopefully to a lot of the people who are either listening to this or generally who make stuff enjoy the things you do every day don't wait to enjoy it later because it might not be there so we kind of right let's you know let's invent new products and you know I, I love prototyping I like coming up with the ideas and then with having Joe and Steve on board it just totally changed everything because now I've got people I can rely on but you have a, you, you, I'm sorry for interrupting. You have no, a different no. you have a different history because you have you had established yourself as a you've already created a business years ago. So I think that I think that it's 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 part of the you you your growth as a business person to be able to uh, to be able to you already established you've made a business now you can say okay now I can pick and choose what I want to do. Mm -hmm. It's harder for a lot of people. I I'm the reverse. It took me a while to be able to establish a business. And for me, the enjoyment is making this business work, yeah. you know. But at the same time, the fact that you're able to kind of come to that conclusion, I'm just going to make what I want. And, and the market is obviously, I mean, you're doing well because, I mean, you got two guys. You seem like you're happy. Yeah. I mean, you're not at the raves anymore, right? No, not so much, no. Not so much, you know. But I, I'm fascinated with you specifically because I know you you sell stuff at Eating Tools and you're very your 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 work is very like I said approachable. The, the concept of making kitchenware is you're providing somebody something that they can use to nurture their family, and that is always a little bit better than a curtain rod. For me, yeah, yeah. I think you know a ladle. It's not very good if you want to keep the light out of your bedroom in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you just, but that's what your eyes are for, right? You with a pillow over your head and the problem yeah, yeah, solved. But it's good for soup. You yeah, know. for sure. I mean, for me, it's about, and it's become about, um, it's become about, okay, so, in, I, you know, I don't know about in the US or, or not, but probably, you know, around the world, there's been a lot more interest in, in food, uh, in where food comes from, provenance, uh, terroir, you know, or the organic movement, the buy local, grow yeah. local. And, you know, my, my brother is pretty kind of prevalent in that, that whole world. And I think quite a lot of his stuff has, has, um, has filtered down to me. You know, my brother set up a tea company, uh, huh. because he loves making herbal tea. And then he spent 15 years building it up and he created a product out of something that he loved. And, you know, we have a lot of these, and then he sold it last year and he, he made a lot of money. Um, you know, and, but being with him and he's a vegetarian and he, he eats organic food and sort of a lot of that's kind of, you know, he's a big influence on me. He's my older brother. He's, you know, a lot of it washes down onto me and I'm thinking, well, okay, if you've paid, you know, 20 pounds for a piece of steak, whatever, you know, whatever that is in, in US dollars, you know, 
15, 20, 25, 30 dollars for a steak. Really good piece of meat. Why the fuck are you going to put it in a aluminium cheap five pound frying pan? You know, and then put it on some cheap mass produced plate, especially in the restaurant business. You know, and this is, does slightly kind of make me cross. You go into a lot of restaurants and they're serving you a steak and you've got a fucking blunt serrated steak knife. Yeah. I mean, serrated knives in themselves should be illegal. Except for bread knives, please. No, even bread knives. God I know damn it. I'm them. just about to make 56 of them, for God's yeah. sakes. I know. I wasn't going to mention it, but now you brought <laughs> well, you it up. you just certainly did, God damn yeah. it. No, you started it. <laughs> Shouldn't. The best, I mean, the I mean, I'm involved. Knife. None of my no. customers are listening to this goddamn thing anyway. Don't worry about no, that. No, exactly. And that, what up? I'm a, just a blacksmith. I don't know fucking anything about knives. <laughs> uh, I just hitched it for a living. But, uh, you know, and so it, it's become a kind of, it's become more, we've become more and more passionate about, well, let's use good, good, kitchenware or you know and eating out or eating anywhere is not just about the food it's about what it's served on right the people you're with the wine you drink the glass that you drink your wine you know you don't drink a fucking bottle of shadow lafitte well actually i have done this but out of a jam jar <laughs> in fact that's one of the best bottles of wine i've ever drank in my life was a bottle of shadow lafitte the out most of a jam mediocre jar. jam jar but i understand yeah exactly yeah hot on the australian beaches <laughs> uh you know and it's it's kind of, and maybe it becomes part of the business story or whatever. But it's about producing beautiful tools, beautiful utensils, you know, that people use every day. They need to be used, and people love them and they cherish them. And that gives us that gives us a real buzz, you know. In the workshop, we're all big foodies. Uh, we you know we love our food. We love talking with the chefs. We love finding out what they want to use. And I think. You know, I always say like a, you know, it's part of the ingredients. The the kitchenware that you use is part of the flavor. Yeah. Oh, I'm also fascinated about the, uh, the one another thing that is interesting to me as in regards to craftsmen and makers who become professional. I feel like that concept of approachability. It's always been something with me. Uh, I had a, I was the one of my mentors was this steel sculptor who created the idea from me to me that small sculpture isn't a maquette and that it becomes more approachable and the concept of art being more approachable made me want to make other things more approachable and part of the approachability was price hmm. i feel like especially when it comes to being in business i feel like there's something about the price that tells you something about the person because you're actually you're actually when your prices and i see people's knives and they're, they're the prices are I think they're either low or they're mini, or, you know, mini or the middle of the road or fair. I think fair. I think this is someone who really is trying to is trying to have a communication with the public at large, and I and I'm fascinated with it. And I get in fights with my business partner because if it were up to me, I'd want the prices to be a little bit lower. But it's like it's a it's a one of those things. It's like something got to give. I want my work to be out there. And part of my work being out there is also the price. And that's one of the things about your work that, you know, your ladles and your spoons and your axes and your 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 knives and everything you do. I feel like the price is very approachable. I'm sure, I don't know in regards to the people who are around you, but I always feel like I think about price in a way that is very telling of the person too. Yeah, I think I want, you know... Yeah, I kind of want everyone to be able to afford to buy the stuff that we make. 
I, I think, I, I mean, I'm just going to take a little sidetrack at the moment. So it's kind of, you know, we don't really make any money from making chef's knives. So, right. and I do make them and I make axes and we don't really make any money off making axes. And weirdly enough, I've become kind of slightly known for being an, an axe maker and a knife maker. But actually our main, and in fact, almost our whole business is, is the kitchenware. So if we look at the kitchenware business, you know, we, we have a kind of formula about how we price stuff. So how long does it take? What are the costs of the materials? And then we ref we kind of we reflect against what the general market price is right. for products of that field. Now, in this country, there's no one else doing what I'm doing. So our nearest comparison, to a certain extent, is in the U.S. Now, our ladles at 50 quid in the U.S. are probably $150. You know, so we're relative. We're seen as relatively so a big. Uh, about 25% of our market is in the US 20%, 25% of our customers and they find our product quite cheap whereas in the UK a lot of people find it quite expensive mm. so it's definitely the upper upper range you know if you're buying a, a ladle for 60 quid you've, you've probably got to have a few you know spare bucks well, I, but when, it's, when still I... a, it's still attainable that's the issue. It's the attainability. I'm not. I'm not just saying. You know, I, my cutoff usually for handmade tools and equipment in terms of like being reasonably priced is like two hundred dollars. Yeah. And I, and I and I generally seem to think that like that's also the cutoff of people who might not necessarily. They might be first time buyers. Yeah. You know, and and I just I just think that, I think the fact that you're you're conscious of that, is, applaudable. I mean, I think it's a, maybe a sense of fairness in a yeah. way. I think you know, like we, I said, that's that's applaudable. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. You want people that that's. I mean, it's true because I want people to have my knives. Yeah. And I make I I feel like the price is helps dictate that cost. You yeah. know, and and I think that I think that it is important, especially when you're a maker. To kind of address what you're going for in terms of your price. I mean, yes, you can you can you can give. I mean, you can say, all right, this takes me like you know a month to make or whatever. You can justify anything, but yeah. when it comes down to the distant the difference between being like a craftsman and a business person, there is something to be said about. I'm not talking about cheap. I usually like to say reasonably priced. Yeah, I like to say fair. Like when I look at all the guys who make hammers, like Cliff, like John, and. Ben Snur and all those guys. I feel like their prices are fair. Yeah. And 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 that there is something to be said about that. There's something to be said about how these people and how how these people feel towards the customer and also it's how they feel towards themselves. Now I'm going to give you one reason why I say this. My father was an extraordinary painter, one of the amazing painters. He's an incredible painter. He painted cityscapes. He painted these cityscapes and there were these incredible lines and the, the, the foreshortening and the, his, the talent was like, I mean, it was jaw dropping, but when it, it buildings, architecture, structures, amazing. When he got to draw a person, it was like a stick figure. I mean, it was bad. It was super bad. And it got to the point where I felt like later in life when I was meeting after he had passed away and we were having a, I was, we were dealing with the rabbi and we we're kind of talking about his work. We were. I was the only one who really had any kind of art background so I could talk about art and when I was explaining how he was and I was making this comparison that it made it made it difficult for him. I felt like there was a there was a being 
He refused to sell his work. He refused to do it. And I felt like it was this, and the fact that he couldn't draw people, I felt like there was like this inability to be approachable. And the things that he did, he priced things to the point where it was a, it was the inability to be approachable and to deal with people in general. And it's a strange thing to say, but I'm, I'm kind of convinced I don't want to bend the will of my customer. I want my customer to feel like they got a good experience. They got something that they're going to ha- be able to have and then pass down. They're going to they're going to have something that they're not going to be afraid to use because God forbid, you know, it's, you know, you got to pull it out with white gloves. Hmm. Um, but I do believe that there is an intrinsic relationship, especially with the blacksmith of dealing with the general, the public at large. And I feel like the work that you've done it exemplifies that. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, I think right at the beginning, I said in, inherently I'm a, I'm a selfish person because I make for selfish reasons. But I, I hope that the stuff that we make also brings a lot of pleasure to people. Well, that's why I was surprised that you said selfish, because when I look at the things that you're making, these are not like Fabergé eggs, you know, no, I mean, you could I, I have think it's, gone that direction too. Yeah, of course. And I, I think it's selfishness in a way because it fulfills an inherent need within myself. Right. Uh, and, you know, selfishness is, you know, is a, in our society, it's a bad word. You shouldn't be selfish. And I, and I think people should, in a sense, be more selfish because I think you need to look out for your not look out for yourself first over and above other people i think you need to uh i think you need to look to your own needs to make you a better person therefore you can treat other people better i that's think you're the, right that's the aim i 100 percent right I, I don't do it because no that's 100 you know, percent right you have to take care of yourself in order for you to take care of others you know it's the it's the airplane mode you know when when the plane's going down and the oxygen masks drop, they always say, "Put on your own mask first, so that you can help other people." Oh, that's tr- I, th- I always thought that they were just trying to weed out the heroes, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. and then the people who are just or like the you weak, know, yeah, <laughs> weed yeah, out yeah. the weak, so or the short people. Anyway, so what's yeah. next for you guys? I know, I know, <sighs> teaching must be tough because teaching's with, with out of the window is, at the moment. Yeah, teaching's out of the window, and then and then obviously the festival's got to be much. Yeah, they're, they're all out so you know so what's lock, next a lockdown happens and, uh, and and everything goes out the window well we're kind of what's next at the moment it's it's kind of consolidating the business so for me i've i've taken a step out of production i'm still in the workshop and i'm still making a lot of stuff but i've kind of you know taken a slight step back uh to allow the guys a little bit more freedom and a, and a little bit more kind of autonomy so that they can make stuff without me so part of the next step is for me to you know if i don't turn up to the workshop for a week it doesn't all fall apart right um so it's a kind of more getting into the business so we've set up the website uh that's going great uh we'd like to get back to teaching and you know we will go back to doing festivals but also we'd like to create more events at the workshop so we don't have to um so we bring people to us right we can kind of give them the same experience maybe a little bit more personal a little bit more uh, intimate and just more blending of um this fusion of food and and blacksmithing or making 
Um, I'll give you a little exclusive if you nice. want. Uh, nice. Of course. The big exclusive is, and we, this is the first time it's been publicly spoken about, uh, is that we've got a cookbook coming out. Oh. So I've spent two years working on a cookbook with uh, 15 different chefs. And each chef was given uh, two or three utensils, whether it be pans or spatulas or whatever, knives. And, and they've created recipes based around those utensils. Uh, so that's, that's going to be um, amazing. Yeah, I mean, it is. I, I think it's going to be amazing. And these are like 15 of Britain's top chefs have and they i mean they're so unbelievably generous to give so they've given all their recipes for free uh and so they've you know each one has given two or three different recipes on their own signature style so it's a big collaboration and i know um i've got a co-author who's a she's a cookbook writer um so i kind of uh, conceptualized it and have kind of managed the whole thing and then there's a there's stuff about blacksmithing and so it's kind of you know, I've got a spatula. What do I do with it? Or I've got some ingredients, and let's use these utensils. So it's a real fusion of the both, basically. So that's, that's the great. next. Yeah, the next thing is to kind of. What's what's the name of the what's the name of the book? It's called the Forge Kitchen. Nice. When do you think it'll come out? Uh, hopefully, it's coming out in about eight weeks' time. Oh man. Yeah. That's gonna. Just, where are you, how are you selling it? Are you selling it direct, or are you gonna we're put gonna it on sell Amazon? It. Yeah, it's self-publishing. Um, we're gonna, we'll probably do an, uh, an Instagram campaign and sell it through the website. And we'll do some pre-orders quite soon. We're just... That's exciting. I mean, it's its its mind-blowing that we've actually managed to, to, to do it. Um, it's an incredibly beautiful-looking book. So it's a little bit of everything. It's maybe for the, for the... To be generalistic in a way. Maybe for the husband who's interested in making stuff. Maybe he might want to try some of the recipes maybe he's got some stuff and you know or maybe he might want to read the bit about blacksmithing but his wife and this is i'm being very kind of you know very general you know maybe his wife wants to cook something so it's a kind of a book for both men and women and it's about craftsmanship and it's about cool. ingredients and food anyway so that's that's amazing that's, that's coming up soon uh yeah, can I just... make? Can I make? One, speaking of being selfish, can I selfishly suggest? Not suggest, but beg for something. Yeah, I'm hoping that you guys are going to do more videos, because ah. here's the reason: there is nobody making better instructional videos without having words and without having nonsense. You know exactly what you're doing than you guys. That's, there is nobody. There's nobody that. Uh, that I mean. If you are a blacksmith or you want to learn how to make something, go to the Forge on YouTube because you guys make the most beautiful and fun videos to watch. I love that is, them. That's very kind. Oh yeah, my big, god! Big, big I smiled on my face. I well, screamed that's... at Steve. I was like, "How come these goddamn videos are so good? Yeah, that's There's no other one to go to." We had it was really funny. We had a um, an amazing guy um, called Mike come in from TA Outdoors. He's a he's a kind of he's a YouTuber. And a, and a and a craftsman and a, he's out here kind of a woodsman and bushcrafter guy and, and he's just made a film we made a film last week um so we've got some more films coming out over the next couple of weeks but he was saying to steve so what kind of camera are you using what you know have you got the latest one <laughs> steve looked a bit kind of shy and went, oh no i've got a 15 year old nikon d20 or whatever it was <laughs> you know steve's brilliant i mean oh. he, what i mean he makes the films we're just 
you know what he does with it is is incredible you know to be honest you know i don't watch youtube i don't i'm not really kind of i don't have time i've got two amazing boys and my wife at home i don't of you course. know i do a little bit but I, so i don't it's not my world i don't really know much about it so i said to steve last year look i'll pay i'll finance everything i'll pay for so they get paid to make the films he gets paid to edit joe gets paid to be in them i don't i don't get paid uh you know and what he does is is fantastic and we love doing it but the problem being to a certain degree is it's very seductive the world of youtube you know we we want to make more films but also we're a production business so we right. need to produce a certain amount of product that's right to service the shops that we sell our stuff through yeah. and for the website and you know we could we could go oh, let's make right. this and film it and then so you're we, in the content business and then we're in the content business but right. we're not in the content business right. because we're blacksmiths so it's a balancing it's a balancing I, act th that's the answer the answer that i would say would be forget it it's too much work i got work to do i am 100 percent with you on that yeah one. but we you know we love it and you did it i mean it's a it's a banger it was a that yeah. was the the axe one was a winner a total winner I mean that, and then we've just scratched the surface. So what we're trying to do, in a way, is kind of do a cinematic version of the cookbook. So you'll notice a theme being. So we've got a film coming out in in two weeks' time with an amazing chef, uh, a guy called James Wetlaw, who who's a he's a goat chef. So his his whole business is selling goat meat, um, huh. which is quite unusual. But James, we're making the film this week, uh, so we've made uh, some utensils i won't give too much away but we made some stuff on the forge and then james will use it to cook with so our our kind of um uh our, our sort of theme to our films is how to make stuff i don't know if you saw the coffee scoop film um you know we want to show people how we make the products but also show them in situation so we alex make something Pohl. <laughs> what a wild ride alex Paul. yeah unbelievable what a story unbelievable <laughs> i can't i mean i'm i was i had a little bit of information but not as much and, and and um you are one of these people that i look up to is a pleasure to know you is an honor to have you on this podcast and i can't thank you enough for being here and go to alexpoleironwork.com yep. sign up for the newsletter and you can see all the stuff they have they got frying pans kitchen utensils once in a while i have an axe on board Get into that newsletter. I'm sure they're going to have all the information in regards to that new book coming out. You can also go to their YouTube channel. It's called The Forge. Check out those videos done by a friend of the show and Alex's, one of his main men, Moonshine Metalworks. Did a great job. Definitely watch those videos. They are definitely worth it. The axe making one and the knife one, they're all in the coffee scoop. Definitely check them out. And also, on Instagram, follow not only Alex Pohl Ironwork, but follow his one of his other guys, Joe Garnett underscore blacksmith. That's the young UK version of Cliff Dufton. I'm telling you. <laughs> and then go over to Instagram and follow Full Blast Podcast. That's how you can interact with the show. I got all sorts of stuff on over there. You can send me DMs. That's how you interact with the show. If you want to send dilemmas or questions or whatever, we'll get you squared away. So once again, thanks, Alex. And I'm super excited for next week. We got Adam Balkovic of Built Sharp Knives. I got some great guests coming up in the future. 
I'm working on the deals of some biggies. And then uh, we're going to have a couple other buddies. Uh, Tyler Bell's coming on. We're going to have a return of a couple guests. And I also am working out the deal for a big uh, Black Friday show, which I'm really, really excited about. But uh, other than that, thanks for all your support. You guys are the best. We're doing a good job. Got to keep doing a better one. And I'm fired up, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.